Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff. This is a special edition of Real Crime Stories, and I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired NYPD Manhattan North Homicide Sergeant. And today I have a most unbelievable guest. Her name is Barbara Butcher, and she was the chief of staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner for 22 years. And what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what that means. It means that she ran all the forensic science training programs. Uh, she was responsible for medical legal investigations, disaster planning, fatality management, WTC 9-11 victim recovery identification, which has become the, uh, the gold standard of DNA identification probably across the nation, if not across the world. Uh, missing persons. And also as a deputy director, she... Uh, uh, coordinated the 1993 bombing at the World Trade Center, and also Flight 587, which resulted in 265 deaths. deaths excuse me. She also responded, if that's not enough death, to the tsunami in Thailand, where there's over half, half, a, half a million deaths, correct? About 260,000. 260,000 yeah. to try to help them with the identification of these uh, bodies. Uh, to give closure to the families. Anyway, what we're going to talk about today, and when I first mentioned this to Barbara, uh, the Gilgo Beach homicides, I could see her eyes light up. So uh, this is a case that's in excess of 10 years old, uh, older in, in, uh, in regards to some of the, uh, the dead uh, bodies recovered. But the investigation is still what's known as a cold case. And it, whether all of the deaths are connected or not is a, a matter of argument, opinion. Uh, there's, there's not 100% science behind saying, oh, these aren't all connected or that they are all connected. So one of the things uh, well, that I would like to say, and I'm going to have Barbara talk, is that there was some connection with sex workers. And at least four of them right away, uh, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartelme, Bartelme, me, I think, Megan Waterman, Evelyn Costello, they were all escorts who had advertised on Craigslist. So that's that's a commonality. But when I really looked into this case, I also noticed that there were other two other escorts, Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack, who were also escorts and were found in the same vicinity as these bodies. And then there's also a seventh, and that was Shannon Gilbert. But we'll discuss each one of these and how it relates to each other. But there's at least 10 to 16 bodies. And let me, let me have, this is Barbara Butcher. Let me have Barbara uh, speak in regards to this. Thanks, Bill. Um, and by the way, I wasn't responsible for the 1993 bombing. I was responsible <laughs> to investigate it. Right, exactly. I said, I said that incorrectly. So there's some humor in this show, even though we're dealing with a serious topic. <laughs> of course. So this is an intriguing case. It's enormously complicated. Um, and it all started in uh, May, I think it was May of, of 2010. Shannon Gilbert was an escort who went out to uh, the Gilgo Beach area on an out call to a client. And she ran from the house, frantic, screaming, they're trying to kill me. She called 911. Her driver tried to chase her down. She went from one door to the next, banging on the door, calling for help. And she disappeared. So police did a search, Suffolk County police, 
and they didn't find anything. But about what, how many months later, in December, about seven months later, an officer was doing a routine training exercise with his dog out on the beach area. And he stumbled upon four sets of remains. These are the four young, they're all small, petite young women um, who were found in burlap sacks uh, that were rotted away. And the remains were mostly skeletonized and they were found right near each other. So this triggered a search, which went on into the spring and then four more victims were found. Um, these were about just under two miles to the east of where the original four girls were found. So this next set of victims, it was two females, one male and a little toddler, a little girl, probably around two years old. Um, then the search extends into Nassau County because this beach from Gilgo, Cedar Beach, uh, Jones Beach, they're all along Ocean Parkway. And they're all, they've all got uh, this area of, of really thick scrub, um, bush that's impenetrable. They, they had so much trouble getting in there to try and find these victims. But anyway, so they find two more sets of remains uh, in the Nassau County side towards Jones Beach. Interestingly, these remains were connected to others that were found back in the 90s, I think um, 1996, a set of legs had washed up on Fire Island in a garbage bag. Yeah. And they matched um, a torso found in Hempstead, near Hempstead Lake, uh, near Lakeview. So they keep finding remains. Now we've got, what, nine sets of remains. And then in December of 2011, Shannon Gilbert is finally found. Um, they found her clothing and then some, maybe a quarter mile away, I believe it was, they found her body. Interestingly, the medical examiner said that the cause of death was probably drowning and that it was probably death by misadventure, which means something near an accident. Right. They didn't count it as a homicide. Now, Michael Bodden, the private pathologist who, you know, was hired by families a lot, he, um, he did an autopsy or, or a second look at the autopsy, rather, and said that he believed her death was due to strangulation. And the fact that she was found face up kind of uh, belied... It any... lends credence to that, sort of. Yeah, yeah. yeah because... Well, could I stop you just for one second? Sure. One of the things, and, and of course, you look at this more of a, in a scientific way because of all the, the uh, scientific evidence. And of course, investigation is an art and a science, right? Mm -hmm. But the art of this, when you look at it, the four girls, they're all escorts. They're all Craigslist escorts. And they're all dumped near the same uh, place. Shannon Gilbert also is a Craigslist escort. And the other two girls that were found later on, Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack, were also uh, prostitutes. And the commonality, of course, is Gilgo Beach. So yeah. obviously, the serial killer has some connection. Does he, in fact, even live around, live there? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because 
the Shannon Gilbert thing, I, I would still count that pretty much as a homicide. Uh, yes. Because it fits it fits the pattern. And we could go into later on, we'll go into MO and and um, uh, the, uh, what's the other thing? Not M MO and um, Signature. Right? Yeah. Signature. And that will lend even more credence to this. But let me let you talk more about the science. I just wanted to lay that out there because yeah. I think there's seven bodies. Pretty much they listed as four that are, oh, these are definitely connected. But why can't, why aren't all seven connected? I think, frankly, all 10 are connected. Okay. Um, I think, you know, as you said, the, the four girls originally found were all Craigslist escorts. Now, and, and then so was Shannon Gilbert. They were all called out to Gilgo Beach by somebody and they were all murdered in a similar fashion. The signatures are very similar. So um, first of all, Craigslist started in 1995. And as I recall, maybe you do, back before that, uh, there were escorts done not through Craigslist, but through escort services. They advertised in the back of the Village Voice. Right, um, right. And basically what that was, was a, um, uh, a switchboard. You had a manager who took the calls in requesting escorts and then assigned them out to their stable of, of workers, um, all through beepers and cell phones. So that, that brings up my first question is, since escort services started in the late 70s, and as I recall anyway, not that I have a deep personal <laughs> knowledge, but I was offered a job. Well, your, beep is, your beep is ringing off the hook right now. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually get offered a job as, uh, as an escort, but I, of course, turned it down. Um, so you had a pension and uh, you had medical benefits. <laughs> So the um, so the, the fact that I think nearly all of the victims, everybody but the toddler, seem to be a sex worker, either through Craigslist or other escort services. So there's my first question to you as an investigator. How is it that police are not able to track? I mean, I can understand the Craigslist thing. All the calls went directly to the girls. They, the others worked for escort services. Why can't they go back to those folks, you know, make a public announcement? Anybody right. who ran escort services, switchboards, give us a call. Well, Barbara, we I think there's a lot, obviously a lot of, we don't have access to the case folder. There's probably a lot of things that we're questioning right now that they have in fact uh, done. You know, yep. we don't know. I mean, look, allegedly the serial killer called Shannon Gilbert's sister a couple of times. Yep. And they tracked it once to like uh, Ma near Madison Square Garden, and I believe once to Massapequa, and then there was another call that was out east in Manorville. Right. So, and these are, look, you know, the serial killers obviously, he's what's known as an organized defender, right? Yes. He's smart, he has a car, probably has a job. He travels, you know, he's willing to travel far to find the victim, you know. But serial killers get very comfortable with dumping someone in a specific area. And in fact, as you know, you study this stuff that they like to sometimes go back there to sure. relive the thrill of 
this body was there or this is where the person was killed. So there's a lot of things that, you know, we can, when you talk about modus operandi and signature, there's a lot of things that can be looked at also, which, you know, are great for these forensic files shows. But as an investigator, yeah, that may help uh, to uncover who actually did this. And yeah. one other thing, and I, and I may be, and I'm sure you were going to talk about this, but the four bodies of uh, uh, Marine Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Barthelmy, Megan Waterman, Amberlynn Costello were wrapped in burlap bags. Yes. And there was some connection with that, right? You want to talk about that? Sure. Um, there were a list of, of people that were so-called suspects or persons of interest in this case. Um, among them was a guy named um, James Bissett. He owned a local nursery out in Suffolk, I believe, and he was the, the region's largest supplier of burlap bags. Okay, that doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot. Anybody can buy a burlap bag, but interestingly, two days after Shannon Gilbert was found, he killed himself in his car. Right. I would love to know more about that. And I'm sure the I'm sure Suffolk County police do. Um, but what intrigues me about this case in particular is not just that these sets of bodies found along Gilgo Beach, but the fact that they connect to skeletal remains and legs and skulls found back in 96 in different areas. We don't have just the Gilgo Beach area. We have Jones Beach. We have Hempstead Lake State Park near Lakeview. And that's, that's Nassau County, right? Right. Yeah. And we have Manorville, the Pine Barrens. So remains were found in Manorville. And interestingly, the other portions of those remains are found at Gilgo Beach. So. Right. So when you talk about signature, yeah. There go lies why he would want to go back to Gilgo Beaches, where the serial killer would be comfortable or get some kind of thrill of going right. back to that location. But did he originally live in Manorville or in Nassau and then move to the Gilgo Beach area where he got very comfortable with, as I said, that very dense brush there along the parkway? It's abandoned. Nobody goes in there. Right. And as I remember, when the, when the guys were, were searching that area, they had to use a brush hog. It was so difficult. They couldn't walk through there. They couldn't get the dogs through. They were being cut up and hurt. And um, it, it's like thick brambles and, and really, really difficult to get through. So using the brush hog, they were able to clear some paths and get through. Did they also use uh, cadaver dogs? Is that how they initially yeah. found? Okay. Yeah. Those dogs were amazing. Uh, I, you know, I worked 9-11 uh, at Ground Zero, and they were amazing at, at uh, Ground Zero. I know, and it was it was really sad, too. Some of those dogs got sick. Yeah, yeah. they cut their little paws and stuff. You yeah, know. yeah. Yeah, so, those dogs were great. Um, but, you know, what, what intrigues me is that this is a... I mean, we have a good picture of this, this killer. We have a youngish male... Uh, 20 to 40, let's say. He owns a home somewhere near that area. And that's not a cheap area. No, no, not at all. And he has a car, obviously. <laughs> and he can afford escort services. Now, some of the, the girls charged as much as $1,200 for, 
for an out call visit. Some 500, some a few hundred. The price is varied. So we've got someone with a job and maybe a family, who knows? But he had to have an area that he was able to kill in. Uh, maybe a garage, maybe a little cabin somewhere, or maybe he lived alone. We don't really know. Right. We don't know much about him, but we can sort of build a, an idea of who this person was and make several suppositions about him. Um, we can go over some of the other persons of interest later. But so Barbara, let me ask you one thing now. You said 20 to 40, but this goes back to 1997. So he could very well be close to 60 right now. Right now, yeah. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah. But this goes back further than people want to acknowledge. Yeah. And I've heard some law enforcement people, you know, almost insist that this is more than one killer, you know, and I think that there's more than likely, like you say, that no, it's one. It's one killer. Yeah. There's, some, there's some differences and we can discuss that, but that doesn't rule out, you know, the one killer theory. Yeah, I, I was also, I was, um, at, at one point, I thought about a, a two-killer theory because um, there were differences in some of the, the murder styles. Um, I, I don't want to talk too much about evidence that hasn't been released because it's, you know, it's stuff that's probative, sure. at least confused. But we know that some of the girls were dismembered and some were not. So right away, that makes you think two-killers. We have um, three distinct areas where the bodies were found, most near the Gilgo Cedar Beach area, um, some in Manorville, and some in Nassau County along Jones Beach. But if you look at the map, you'll see that this is more or less one continuous area mm -hmm. um, along Ocean Parkway. Now, Manorville is equally desolate. That's where you have the Pine Barrens. Nobody goes there except, um, I think the Grucci family does their, used to do the fireworks. their fireworks. Yeah. Is that like the last exit on the LIE? That area? Yeah, it's the last exit before uh, Riverhead. Okay. So it's at, at where, the, where Long Island forks. Okay. Um, but it's also very desolate. So um, what, what here's here's what really threw the whole thing into a tizzy. I was thinking maybe two killers, but then the woman found in Nassau County near the Hempstead Lake, her torso um, revealed her to be a uh, African-American or mixed uh, African-American Caucasian female. Her child, a child of maybe two or three years old, a little girl, was found in the Gilgo area. Right, that's the toddler that they recovered. The toddler, right? yeah. Right, so that that definitely has the connection there that this could very well be the same guy. Right. You know, and we has the African American woman who was recovered in Hempstead. Has has she ever been identified? No, she hasn't. No, no, and neither has her child. And. You know, this brings up a whole nother set of, of scientific um, modalities uh, for investigation. And, and again, I am not involved in the Suffolk County investigation. I don't work with the, with the police there, and I don't know what they've done. Right. So far. But um, 
there's a, a program called NamUs, the National Association of Medical Examiners Unidentified um, Persons uh, website. You go on this website and you can put in all the data you have on a missing person in your family. Medical examiners across the country and coroners have approximately 100,000 unidentified bodies. Wow. They upload the DNA, they upload the photographs, the characteristics, and then the system matches that to the persons who are reported missing. So have all of these people, especially a young woman with a child, they have family somewhere. Someone somewhere knows of a little girl that went missing and her mother and the jewelry that they wore was very similar. The little girl and the mom had similar jewelry on and those pictures were publicized by the police. That should tell someone somewhere in this country, that's the girl I know and right. help identify her. Well, um, with these uh, genealogy sites, for example, I believe um, Valerie Mack was just ID'd in May. Right. Yeah, and uh, right. she's the first successful genealogy identification in New York State history. Right. That's right. That's right. So it's like, you know, the chances that these people will be identified are pretty high. You know, I think it's going to happen. Eventually. And, yeah. Yeah. And then maybe scientifically we could um, connect the dots a lot better if we can uh, find out. I mean, if the woman in Hempstead turns out to be an escort, that's pretty strong yeah. evidence, right? Yeah. And you know, uh, besides the genealogic analysis of DNA, there's also partial DNA matching. And that is uh, very controversial. Um, it's not allowed in most circumstances. And that's when, um, you remember that woman, uh, what was her name, Karina Vetrano, I believe it was? Yes young girl goes out jogging um, along maybe Long Beach, one of those areas. Well, I think it was, uh, in Brooklyn. it was in Brooklyn. Yeah, it was in Brooklyn, the yeah. South Brooklyn, down near the water. Oh, excuse me. I was near Howard Beach, I think. But Howard on the, on the Beach. line of Brooklyn. Right. Yeah. Right. Because the perp was from Brooklyn, I believe. Yeah. Well, they had a, um, a, a partial DNA match and, and they were they had partial partially developed DNA evidence and they were looking to do um, matches to the databases where you don't have a, an exact match, but you have a, a relative. Are you talking, like you're talking about familial DNA? Familial DNA, exactly. And um, I was yeah. educated once. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going to the hearing of the uh, Forensic Science Commission, the State Commission, and uh, to see whether or not they were allowed to use that to help find a perpetrator. Now, you know, as a as an investigator, my my first reaction is, well, of course you can use it. Come on, it's ridiculous. You got to stop a killer here. You can't let this little girl, um, her death go without getting justice. It's horrible. And then there's everybody from, you know, the ACLU and, and, and other groups who say, no, that's not fair to those persons who are related to the killer, but perfectly law-abiding. Innocent, law yeah, yeah. 
I don't know. It's no, so by the, I don't, these arguments really, it's almost like all the new technological advances that are coming across in law enforcement, they're finding some reason to say that uh, it's unfair to certain people. For mm-hmm. example, facial recognition. Right. They're saying it's not fair. Why? Because it's IDing the person that committed the crime. You know, it's like, it's crazy. Uh, yeah. Predictive crime analysis. Yeah. What better way, and again, I'll, I, I always quote her, Dr. Maki Haberfeld from John Jay, what better way of predicting future behavior than looking at past behavior? <laughs> I mean, very simple. What yeah. better way of predicting future crimes than looking at past crimes and where they occurred? So why is that not allowed? Or that they're trying to, you know, license plate readers, same thing. Oh, those, Barbara Butcher didn't do anything, but you're running her plate and she has nothing to worry about. She's That's not right. wanted. She doesn't owe any summonses, you know. So what, what does she care? She won't even know. You know? Yeah. But they're trying yeah, to pull these tools away. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think everything should be done carefully. We don't want to open up a, you know, a wholesale investigation of the public. There needs to be a certain amount of oversight. But damn it, if you have a good clue, if you have a way of catching a, a, a vicious, vicious killer who might kill anybody you know, your family, why not use everything you have? So well, anyway. but look at even DNA with um, the statute of limitations. Yeah. And sex crimes. They found a way around that. That's they right. They indicted the DNA. How that's bad right. was that? You know, that was, we don't know what the purpose. Let's indict the DNA profile. And that's what they did. And so many people now are in prison because their DNA got indicted, right? I love that. I, I think that's too. one of our, our proudest moments. What a brilliant idea. Yes. You know, you, you're, someone was raped and brutally beaten nine years ago. So we're going to just drop it now. Right. Statue right. limitation. Come on. Well, how much, <laughs> how about how many much DNA just sat on a shelf because the municipality didn't have the money to process it? That's right. That's right. How that's, fair. That's just not fair. No. So, in whoever thought of that, and who I don't know who it was. I don't know. either. I don't either. Yeah. But it's it was brilliant. Yeah, that's somebody I'd like to talk to. Yeah. Um, so anyway, eventually, um, all of the victims will be identified through DNA. Uh, but is what are they doing with the DNA right now? I know that the New York City. Um, forensic anthropology team was called in to assist Suffolk County for the first four victims. And they did extensive anthropologic analysis. Um, There's a lot of findings in there that are really, really important. Um, All of them, you know, again, confidential, but uh, the DNA lab at the New York City Medical Examiner- Can I just, uh, just stop you for one second? Because sure. there's something very interesting about what you're talking about. And one of the reasons you, you as a professional are so protecting this evidence is because if someone becomes a suspect, the police need to be able to challenge them with information that only they know. You know, or else you could get some wacko saying, oh, right, the go killer. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Let me ask yeah. you a few questions. All right. See you. You know, but you're right. So they have to protect certain evidence. I used to get crazy 
in, in New York City, when the police commissioner would release really important stuff in a homicide investigation that yeah. we didn't want released, but he was like this, oh, we have to be, you know, transparent. No, you don't. They yeah. don't need, you know what killed me? Remember when that little Jewish Hasidic boy was murdered? Oh, God. The guy cut him up and put him in his refrigerator. And the public didn't need to know that. I know. I that know. Was horrendous. That was Why did they have to tell the public that? There was no need for that. Nope. No. And nope. Yes, I just wanted to put my two cents in there. And just yeah. No, I, I you know, and why evidence is protected or should be protected. So sure. you, you guard evidence for several reasons, not just what, what you said, that you want to know things that no one else knows but you and the killer. Right. And then there are certain things that are evidentiary that you don't want your killer to get rid of. Right. Uh, sometimes they take souvenirs. If you know that, keep it to yourself. They call it, they call it a trophy. A trophy, right. See, yeah. you're forgetting this, Bobby. You've been away from it too long. You're forgetting. I know. I need to get back and You're forgetting the language of homicide. Yeah, I know. <laughs> keep a trophy. Yeah. Exactly. So those are the kind of things that, you know, we, we don't want to go into because they are so useful. But anyway, um, so linking the victims through DNA, like linking that mother and her little girl, um, the linking the remains that were found on Fire Island, that was a set of legs in a plastic bag, and they still had the flesh on them. So they were able to tell there was a surgical scar on the leg. Things like that are so important. Wow, yeah. And then they're linked to a torso found elsewhere. Wow, this is just, it's all because of DNA that we're able to link all these cases, which is what makes me feel that it's one killer. Now, so here's the one piece of DNA we're missing, the killer's DNA. Right. Ordinarily, that's what we're interested in. Any trace that he leaves, Notice I keep saying he, because the idea that this could be a woman killer is absolutely, I think, out of the question. Right, right. Women don't really hire escorts. Um, it's, it's been- They are the escorts. <laughs> That's right, right. I mean, there, there, I, I, there are some women who have hired male escorts, but to hire this many and kill right. them is a pretty far stretch. So anyway, so- what the DNA we really want is the killer's DNA. Why don't we have it? Because these remains were so well hidden for so long that they're mostly skeletonized. There's no trace of DNA left. Um, the clothing has been out in the weather and the rain and the snow for 10, maybe 15 years. Right. Um, actually more, like what would it be in 2020? And we still- well, one, one was 17 years. Uh, yeah, with Miss um, Mack, I think, with uh, Valerie Mack. She yeah, was and then, in, I think, uh, 1997 or went missing. In, in, right. And we have one from 1996. So that's, four, that's 24 years. 24 years this guy's been operating. Which means he could very well could be close to 60 years old. That's right. He right? could be. Yeah. You no, know, Bob, can I just stop you for one second? Because you brought up the whole DNA thing. Uh they just had a press conference recently with um, uh, Geraldine Hart, who is the FBI agent who's now the Suffolk County Police Commissioner since 2018. And the New York Times had a story 
uh, and they acted as if there was brand new smoking gun evidence, which there really isn't. And one of the things that they made public was a belt. Yeah. And the belt had um, letters HM or WH on it. And they had had this, of course, for years, but they just didn't release it to the public. And where it was found or, or you know, it could have been around someone's neck, we don't know. But their, their feelings are that the killer uh, may have touched this. But if there was DNA, it, there, that's a, an item that possibly it could have been on. But you don't know also how long was that out in the elements, right? Yeah. But they were hoping, I guess, that someone would identify the HM or the WH letters, which they probably should have released a, a long time ago. Probably, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah, they, you know, DNA is almost miraculous. You know, from the part of the reason that New York City has the largest and most advanced DNA laboratory in the country is because of 9-11. Right. 9-11 did nothing good for anyone except for DNA. It advanced the technology by about two or three generations because we were working with items like a bone fragment that weighed less than a gram and had laid on, on top of the Deutsche Bank for 10 years in the wow. wind and rain and snow. And yet it was still able to get a profile from it. So the methodologies developed in that time have made that lab just so incredibly advanced. Is that, Barbara, are you using the, the PCR method? The polymer chain um, reaction, is that replicates a small amount of DNA and makes it larger? The, um, the low copy DNA or uh, high sensitivity or low copy they used, they used for many, many years. Um, they stopped using that recently. I don't know if it's a PCR or an STS or whatever. I'm not, I'm not a DNA scientist. Right. Um, but they uh, developed methodologies that used as few as six skin cells to come up with a profile. Now they stopped using that for regular work um, maybe a year or two ago only because the DNA testing was so incredibly sensitive that it picked up lots and lots of mixtures. Most items have been touched by at least five people. Right. And they were getting so many mixtures that it was hard to separate who was the predominant um, contact onto that item, that weapon, gun, whatever. So well, I don't know. Defense attorneys love to know all of that stuff to be able yeah. to. Uh... <laughs> Although, you know, something when we watched the, the uh, cross-examination in the OJ case, the jury was sleeping. They spent so much time uh, yeah. with the, with the uh, scientist who was talking about DNA, the jury just went to sleep. You know? Yeah, it is. It, it can be incredibly boring, except when it's used for something like this, which yeah. is it's our best tool ever. So I have no doubt that using familial searching, using uh, genetic genealogy, and using the um, high sensitivity methods, we will eventually identify all of the victims. Um, right now we have six out of the 10 or 11 people. Um, so why haven't they been identified to date? I don't know. Is Suffolk County, did they have a moratorium on it? Um, are they working with another lab, an outside lab, a New York lab, the Suffolk lab? I don't really know.
Well, the, the but the FBI, and Barbara, you can also talk about how in the beginning of this investigation, yeah, there was a lot of problems where there was corruption. There was that Chief Burke that many people thought was a suspect. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Spoda, who was the, I think, the uh, district attorney out there, he also wound up getting in trouble over this. Yep. And then they had the, the former police commissioner, Dorner, I think his name was. He didn't seem like he really knew how to run an investigation like this, you know. Yeah. Well, maybe we should open up that little elephant in the room. Why in the beginning was there so little progress on this case? Why was Shannon Gilbert not chased down? Um, why wasn't it investigated fully when she disappeared? And Chief Burks uh, or Commissioner Burks at the time, um, yeah, he, he was a troubled kind of guy. He was eventually uh, indicted, arrested. Um, and convicted of interfering in an investigation, in brutality of a suspect, assault, et cetera, et cetera. He served, uh, I think, four years, uh, 48 months in uh, federal prison. Um, I think he got his pension, though. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. You know, you wear that white shirt, you get your pension. You wear a blue shirt, you're, you go away in handcuffs behind your back, and you get nothing. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But, um, you know, let's let's just call it what it is. When the when this first happened, there was an attitude, I think, of, ah, well, it's just a hooker. Because these were prostitutes. Right. This these girls that, you know, she was drugged. She ran away. You know, she's just a, a crazed prostitute, druggy. Let's not throw all of our assets and resources after this one. But then when they found the other girls, you know, you know, and I know that if you've got the investigative mindset, nothing stops you. Right. You can't let a mystery like this go by. It had to be a full court press 24-7, 365, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that just never happened. And we're not sure. Well, I mean, maybe it was just the attitude of, well, it's only prostitutes and this is going to be a difficult one since they're not identifiable and they've been laying out in the rain and the snow for, you know, their skeletons have been there for 10, 15 years. You know, Barbara, I'm not going to lie. I don't want to put down Suffolk County homicide investigation. No. I'm sure they do a great job. Yeah. But they don't have the amount of murders every year that, like, for example, right. New York City would get. Uh, right. And because you Experience. get so many murders, you, you get better at it. Practice mm -hmm. makes perfect, as they say, you know? Sure. So, and I, and I don't doubt Suffolk probably has some fantastic homicide investigators. But, you know, from what I see in New York City, you know, like the homicide squads in New York City were the premier units of any investigative unit on the whole NYPD, you know? Yeah, all over the units, country even. All over the country, yeah. I would see other units... From the New York City Police Department, that were the elite so-and-so, and I won't mention any names because I'll get hate mail. But they would come and work on a case with us, and they would be like, "Holy shit!" They, you know, and they were like, they were impressed, you know. And yep. I was proud to work in that unit with such great detectives. But it's true: the more you work on murders, the more skills, the more you skills you get interviewing people, interrogating yeah. people, collecting evidence having seen something before, you know what to do and how it's done, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and again, I'm sure Suffolk 
uh, has some great investigators. But they also, in the beginning, didn't request the FBI. That's right. And for, you know, something, just for their money alone, you should bring them in. And the toys they bring to the investigation. Bring in the FBI. We need their money. You know, we need their overtime money. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I have no doubt that there's some very talented and dedicated uh, homicide investigators in Suffolk County. But it feels like from the top down, there was not a lot of resources and priority thrown at this case. That's in the beginning, the yeah, you're right. You're right. In the beginning. You're right, yeah. So, well, the guy, know, the one author who <clears throat> just wrote that New York Times article, he had yeah. wrote that book, Lost Girls. And yeah. they, they had made a Netflix special on it. And they sort of, uh, that was the whole narrative. The police don't care because they're prostitutes. You know, yeah. And so he sort of, when he wrote that New York Times article, as if there was a smoking gun in this new Geraldine Hart, how now has this case? It's going to be solved in a few weeks. You know? <laughs> and it was so, it's so untrue. He led yeah. the headline, led you to know, believe that, oh, they have new information, you know? Yeah. And there was no new information other than Miss Mack uh, being identified. That was the only yeah. new information they had. The belt yeah. they had, they had that belt for years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, you're right. There's no substitute for experience. And, you know, the NYPD not only has some of the most experienced detectives in the country, but the crime scene unit in New York amazing. City. They're great. They're great. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, the whole forensic section for NYPD is, is really stellar. Well, you know, some um, police departments don't have a separate unit that does crime scene. The detective just puts on his crime scene hat. And process yeah. <laughs> the scene, you know. Think about how distracting and how much work that is, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we and we've had some of the greats, you know, John Pellucci and and Hal Sherman and and uh, Eddie and and God, what, Matt, Matt Steiner. Yeah, yeah. Matt Steiner's great, you know. You know, All these, these people. Are I'm gonna tell them they're gonna send me some money for mentioning their names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these guys are are, are legends, you know, and they. Uh, I, I would like to see people with that kind of experience. You know, why not call them in? Why not help out? But yeah, about the FBI, yes. So early on, the FBI did join in the search, but they were not officially invited to be part of the investigation. Right. After Burks, uh, Chief Burks left, um, and after uh, Geraldine Hart was named commissioner, now they're back in officially. So they bring a lot of resources to bear. Uh, especially in DNA and in, um, in uh, you know, they have the ability to throw some more money at this. Uh, right, at this and, they, and they have national connections. To, yeah, national you know, connections. Need that for whatever reason, they can pick up a phone and call someone in, you know, in Los Angeles or someone in, you know, Butte, Iowa, and, and they're, they're connected right away, whereas, you know, local police department can't do that. You know? Yeah. So, you know, we don't have the killer's DNA, but we do have some DNA from some of the victims. And, you know, why is it so important that we identify them? Well, because when you know who a person is and what their life is, you know who they were associated with. And that's why we can now go back and, and like Valerie Mack having been just identified in May of this year. Now you can go to her family. Who was she seeing? Who were her friends? What escort services did she work with? Right. Um, and that, you know, back then, um, I actually did call the Suffolk County Police Department 
I called the detectives there because I had some information that I thought was interesting and I still do. And that is that one of the victims found was a male, an Asian male in women's clothing. So a transgender person, he was not killed like the others. Um, different method and the kind of thing that makes you think that the guy that hired him as an escort did not know that he was a male. And then when he found out, he got really angry and killed him in a specific way. So is it, is it out there how he was killed or you don't want that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's out there. So um, actually, let's see, we can find out right now. I think you did write on your notes that you sent me that he was um, killed a certain way. I don't want to yeah. say it. <laughs> ah, yes. Okay. Let's just say blunt trauma. Okay. okay. Not strangulation, blunt trauma. Now, Barbara, were all the other victims um, definitively killed through strangulation? We don't know. You don't know. We don't know, know because... That, is that an assumption or is there any scientific evidence that they, they were strangled? Um, I recall one mention of the hyoid bone being injured. Uh, on I a think that was with Shannon Gilbert with Dr. Baden suggested. Probably, yeah. Yeah, because she was the freshest. Now, the hyoid bone is a little tiny thing, and it's very delicate. And we do have some evidence of scattering of these remains. Um, you know, animals in the, in the brush can scatter the remains. It's really hard to say. Um, in the absence of flesh, in the absence of being able to see hemorrhages in the strap muscles of the neck, mm -hmm. uh, injury to the hyoid bone or the thyroid cartilage. If all those things are gone, you can't say strangulation. But there was mention of it, let's put it that way. Right. Um, so now we have this male, probably transgender person, uh, probably living as a female. He had some very interesting findings um, in, the, in his skeleton that made it uh, obvious that he had an unusual walk, that he probably had pain in his joints, probably was losing teeth because of this certain bone disease uh, he had. Uh, and I'm saying he, because I don't know if he identified as female. Right. Um, so we could this say they- Well, they were even considering that anyway. Right, right. So before, before we had... You can speak that way because it, it goes back to 10 years ago. Right. Before we had, a, you know... A, 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 we all became woke. Right. Before we had an acceptable terminology. Yes, yes. So um, this, this, male, this male body um, had uh, this unusual bone disease. Pretty rare. The kind of thing that you would go to a doctor for. Now... We have a very good sketch, a composite sketch of this male person. We have um, some DNA. We have the knowledge uh, that he lived as a woman or was transgender. And we have the knowledge that he had this bone disease. Now, my thought was back then, there were only a few clinics 
that were treating transgender people, giving them hormones, doing their health care. Uh, I can think of two or three. Why not go right to those clinics and say, hey, do you know anybody that looks like this? Asian male, transgender, with an unusual walk, missing teeth, and a bone disease. You no, know, Barbara, you're 100% right. We had a case where uh, a transgender guy killed his roommate, and we found a transgender employment agency. And <laughs> we were like, wait, yeah. that would have existed. You know? Yeah. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff you have to do. Yeah. So when this, when this, when I saw these reports uh, of the bone disease, this was from the anthropology group at uh, at the medical examiner's office in New York. Um, I called the detectives out there and said, "Look, and you know, you may have already thought of this, but here are the three clinics treating trans transgender people in New York City, and um, you know, you may want to check them out." And the response I got was. It was very, it was, thanks a lot, honey. Yeah, that sounds good. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, that, and I said, no, 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 this is Barbara Butcher from the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. I know you guys. Listen, <laughs> trust me on this. You're like, like, no, that's great. like you were uh, like someone reading crime novels. Right. Like I was just, you know, average Joe, Joe Citizen, Josephine Citizen calling and yeah. saying, oh, my goodness, I thought of something interesting. Um, I mean, I was looking at the reports that, that told me what disease this was. And, uh, you know, maybe they did follow it. I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, there's so much we don't know about this investigation. Now, well, we, don't, we don't know anything about the, um, you know, when you talk about the victimology, like you were discussing before, now we get the victim identified. Let's go find out about her life. Let's interview her family. Let's interview yeah. her boyfriends. Let's see if she owned a car. Let's look at her financial records. Let's look at everything about her sexuality. Let's look at who she hung with. That's sometimes the answers in a murder case come from that, you know, and uh, the victimology is so, so, so important. But, uh, right, that, and you're giving them a path to the victimology. That's yeah. why identifying in a homicide investigation, identifying a victim is probably the number one most important thing right in the beginning of the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you notice these girls were uh, like at least the first four girls were all very petite, little petite brunettes. They they all escorts um, all come out of New York. Uh, some were staying out in, in Babylon um, at a motel near there. And maybe she had a lot of clients in the area. I don't know. Right. Somebody has to know these girls. And that goes back also to. Um to MO and to signatures that who does this serial killer prefer? What well, he's looking right. for a small, petite, white girl with short brown hair uh, who advertises on Craigslist. You know, all of those things are important in, in you know, putting a pattern together and who is this guy, you know? Yeah. Although, you know, I lost a lot of confidence years ago with the FBI's profiling unit. Uh, after the Beltway Sniper, they were so far off as like, oh, yeah. I could have made a better prediction than they did, you know? Yeah. Your guy you're looking for is a male white who's 35 years old, probably works in an office, and it, it turns out the shooter's 17, a male black, and he's uh, with his stepfather, who's a male black, 35. You know, so yeah, I don't have a lot of faith in the FBI's behavioral, you know, identification profilers, you know, because... 
I don't know what they're working on that can make them make a prediction like that that was so, so off the wall. Yeah. Well, you know, your predictions are only as good as your information. And I mean, in this case, it's we don't have all that much information to go on, except the victimology of the type of girl. So I'm assuming that Suffolk County detectives were able to go to um, the escort services in town and say, you got anybody, you got a John who prefers petite brunettes and, you know, is out in Suffolk County. Uh, were they able to do that? Did they have the manpower? As far as I know, they did not call in NYPD and ask for any help, right. which would have been, I don't, yeah, I, I don't and, know, would that have been? They would probably have been thrilled to help. Exactly, exactly. We're all thrilled to jump in and help any place in the country, any place in the world. Yeah. It's part of the investigative personality, right? Absolutely. I mean, just to say, oh, I worked on the Gilgo uh, serial killer, you know. Sure, sure. You know, I'm going to put up a shingle on my door when I retire as a PI, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And well, we all have worked in a podcast once with Barbara Butcher and worked <laughs> on the Gilgo serial killer, you know. <laughs> No, Bob, there's one, there's not just one, but there's another thing that I thought was, that I didn't know anything about, and it's in your notes. And there's a guy named John Bitteroff, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, John Bitteroff, yeah. Two, possibly three prostitutes, and he was convicted in 2017. He lived in Manaville, and one of the victims was best friends with a Gilgo victim. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's... That's a really strange one. Now, yeah, it's John Bitroff. Um, so he kills maybe three prostitutes and he's linked by DNA, which is identified because his brother was um, convicted of a crime and had to give DNA and there was a link. So the familial DNA. DNA hit once yes. again. Yes. Once the one again, that the ACLU is trying to get us never to use. It hit. It worked once again. <laughs> so this, um, so John Bitroff, uh, he lived in Manorville, and one of the uh, victims' moms, mothers, said uh, that her daughter got a lot of calls before she was killed from Manorville. In addition, one of his victims, uh, I think her name was Tancredi, her daughter was best friends with, who was it, Bartholomew? Melissa Bartholomew? Yeah, and she was, so the daughter of one of Bertroff's victims was best friends with another victim, one of the Gilgo Beach wow. victims. So, so is, there, really is there any way he could be the guy? Well, that's Suffolk County police did look into that possibility, but the guy's attorney denied his involvement. Wow, what a surprise. <laughs> oh, okay. He's a good guy. He only killed three. Yeah, he didn't kill these girls. He yeah. only killed those girls. Well, without being allowed to speak of them, minus any other evidence, there's no DNA. Right. Uh, there's no physical evidence. He could be the guy, couldn't he? He could. He could. I mean, have the killings stopped? He's in jail. I don't see, you know, I haven't heard of any other killings. But then we have another suspect. Somebody I really like for this. And that is the doctor. The police surgeon. 
Right. This I guy, um, Dr. Peter Hackett, he was a uh, head of emergency services out in Suffolk County, lived in Oak Beach for years, and he was kind of like the mayor of the place, sort of a big shot kind of a guy, lived out there with his wife and kids. And um, what intrigues me about him is that he called Shannon Gilbert's mother a few days after her disappearance and said, hi, I'm Dr. Hackett. I run a service for uh, wayward girls, for troubled girls. And um, I helped her. And the mother, you know, was all freaked out. Oh my God, my God, what about my daughter? Um, and then he called her again, two days later. So that was really, really strange. Why would you call the mother? And now Shannon Gilbert was found when she was found eventually in a marshy area near his house, near his backyard. Interesting. So, so that intrigued me. Why would this guy call the mother of a victim and say something as strange as, you know, I, I run a home for wayward girls and I helped her. But didn't, didn't Shakespeare say you doth protest too much? Yeah, yeah, he protests a little too much. Yeah. So, but what's really interesting is that the killer did call the families of other victims. Right. Melissa Barthelme, her sister got two or three calls from the killer. He said, horrible things to her, sadistic things. And he was using Melissa's cell phone. Exactly, exactly. He was using Melissa's cell phone. So that, that, that brings me back to you here. If, if Melissa's cell phone has a call on it, can't we trace who that came from? Well, can't we trace the number? His cell sites as to where the call was made from. And now we're much better at that. We can actually triangulate it to almost three feet, you know, within where it was made. But back then, it, would, it probably wasn't as sophisticated. And also, now we would almost rely upon, oh, yeah, the call was made at this time. Let's get the video. Let's see if it was. Right. You know, right. could the video identify someone? What if it was made at night? Maybe not. You know, it's not, video is not always clear enough to ID someone. Although right. the video is getting better and better. But yeah, I always question about this case, and this is the areas and we have absolutely no right at all to criticize anyone about the electronic evidence. You know, like you said, the uh, Craigslist uh, records, the call records, the, the cell phone records of the women who were killed, because you don't have to find their cell phone to get their records from the company. You right. know, yeah, yeah, all of that stuff exists. And, you know, I always, when I used to teach a homicide course, I used to say, when you ask a question, what do you get? You get an answer. And what does that answer give you? Gives you more questions, right? Yes. So it just keeps building and building and building, you know, and that's how sometimes you find out who did it, you know? Sure. You ask questions, you get answers, and you keep questioning and you keep digging. Look, in a case like this, you know, and not knowing a lot of the information, you may have to start all over again. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, and, and I, it's true, I forget that technology has changed so much since these murders started. Like my thought was, well, Melissa, Melissa Barthelmate, the killer had her phone and we know that because he used it to call her sister and torment her. Right. So 
why can't we do the Find My Phone app? All right, they didn't exist back walk then. Around, walk around by the beach area, by Gilgo, by Cedar Beach, by um, Oak Beach, and just find my phone until we find Melissa's phone. But maybe that didn't exist more than... No, it, did, it didn't. And the other thing is, is with what the technology we used to use, if the phone was turned off, we couldn't find it either. Right. It had right. to be, you know, emanating a signal and hitting a cell tower in yep. order for that to, to, to work, you know. But, yeah. you know, I think the, the way you solve this is through, uh, you know, wearing out pairs of shoes, you know. Yeah. Call detectives gum, gum shoes because of that, right? Yeah. You got to talk yep. to people. You got to just exhaust that. And like you said, and like I said, you got it may be time to start all over, you know. And maybe they have started all over. You know, several, several times. But, you know, something I one of the things too, like and you just spoke about this doctor, the killer may live in that whole that Gilgo Beach area. You yep. know, it could be that simple that this guy is so confident he'll never be found that maybe he lives there. Maybe it's yep. that doctor, like you said, or the guy who killed two or three prostitutes and we don't have his DNA and his lawyer swears he didn't do this. You know, yeah. 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 The um, the. Um, uh, sorry, the uh, I feel like he does live there. Uh, he's so familiar with, you know, like I said, it's so difficult to get into this brush. He knows how to get in. He knows where the pathways are. Right. He knows the area. And I feel like either he was he grew up there or lived there now. Now, this Dr. Peter Hackett. Um, the police said, no, he's not a suspect. He's just a guy that likes to act big, to insert himself into events. That's why he called the mother. Um, he has since moved to Florida and kind of fallen off the map. Right. But there's something about him that, you know, the fact well, that it's very, called, it's very creepy what he did. Yeah, it's creepy. Mm. It's creepy as all hell. And he lived there and he had the money and the means and everything else. But on the other hand, he lived there with his wife and kids. So it's kind of hard to get escorts when you have wife and children living with you. Yeah. You know, so. Okay. But um, so I would think that, you know, most of the, or if not all of these, were killed somewhere else, of course, and dumped. Yes. You know, so which makes it, you know, where was the original crime scene? Where is the original crime scene? You know, we'll, we'll probably never, never know that, you know? Yeah. And in any case, even if it's a, a, a fresh homicide, I hate to use the word fresh, but a recent homicide, and it's what we call in the uh, homicide vernacular as a dump job, Yeah, it makes it that more difficult to solve because you don't have the original crime scene. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the thought of the Suffolk County police is that all of these murders were done elsewhere and then the bodies were dumped. Some dismembered, some not. Um, some in burlap sacks, some not. And so I, I think what we've got here is a confluence of scientific evidence and good old fashioned canvassing every house, every person, every escort service, uh, cell phone providers, the towers, all of those things have to come together here. And I am hopeful that having a new police commissioner there with FBI experience and the willingness to call in outside experts, I'm hoping that she asks for NYPD help. I'm hoping 
that she asks for New York City Medical Examiner, uh, the DNA lab and the forensic anthropology team to come back there and complete the work that they started on those victims. You know, Barbara, what we used to call that was, uh, and what you're referring to in a very a larger way is shaking the tree. And part of shaking the tree is going out there with flyers. Help us help you. We're working the Gilgo homicides. Put the picture of one victim on it and hand that out. Yeah. Put the victim on, picture. Maybe someone knows these victims and feels very personally involved, but knows something but doesn't want to say anything. You know? Yeah. So when you bring it back out and you shake that tree and you bring it back into the public's consciousness, someone knows something out there. You know? Yep. And all you need is one person to say, all right, look, there's this guy. And all you're like, holy shit, you know? The yeah. coconuts fell out of the tree because we shook the tree, you know? Yeah. It's so simple, yet it's so, so important, you know? Yeah. I can't. Yeah. We, we used to hand out those flies with the picture of the deceased. And sometimes people that didn't know anything about it would go back into the neighborhood and say, look, this old guy. And we had that up on, um, I forget the name of the show, 167th Street. Some old guy was going to his car and got into a parking dispute with this young guy. Young guy punched him and killed him. Wow. You know, he was so sympathetic that we put handed the flyers out and someone said, this is the guy you're looking for. Yep. You know, simple, but th it could happen with a case like this. You know? Yeah. Someone, yeah. someone knows something, you know? Absolutely. It's a combination of science and just good old-fashioned gumshoe detective work, just getting out there and talking to people. I mean, I find it impossible to believe that no one knows a transgender Asian male who walks funny, whose teeth are falling out, and has joint pain. Right, that should be. Who works as an escort. Even if you have the x-rays or something, some doctor knows this guy or something. Yeah. In the, in the transgender community knows this this guy or this woman, which yeah. uh, 10 years ago they were referring to it as, you know. Yeah. But one other thing I wanted to speak of, and we didn't mention this, you mentioned a lot of the bodies were carved up. And that's, there's usually some specific evidence to that in the way it, would, it was cut up. In a couple of the incidences, I think he cut them at a certain area to hide a tattoo. Yeah would have identified the body a lot quicker without the DNA, possibly. Sure. You want to speak about that a little bit? <clears throat> sure. Um, you know, dismemberment is most often done to hide identity. And there are different styles of dismemberment. Some of them are for, for the, the thrill, the sexual thrill, or the whatever thrill. Right. Um, some of them are to hide identity. And so there's a signature involved in the dismemberment. Um, there's also a signature involved in the disposal of the individual remains. Right. And there are styles of cutting. There's people who use surgical precision. There's people who chop randomly. And I remember um, this was back, I think, in the 90s. Uh, we found in floating in the Hudson River and down in the harbor and in the East River, there was this matched set of tourister luggage, blue luggage. And in each piece of this luggage floating along in the river was a piece of a young African-American woman. And we had pieces popping up all over the place. And 
when I opened the bag and looked inside, I said, wow, guys, we got to be looking for an orthopedic surgeon who did wow. this. The, the dismemberment was so beautifully precise with a very sharp sca scalpel. And it was um, dismembering at the joints, like inserting the knife and disarticulating the joints with surgical precision. It was beautiful. No hesitation, cuts nothing. I said, I'm serious. You should be looking for an orthopedic surgeon who did this. And the more pieces we found, the more we saw this to be the case. Anyway, she's tracked down through a very unusual manicure she had, very artistic. And they found out who did that. They found and identified the girl. Turns out her boyfriend works as a car, an automobile modifier. He was the guy that cut into the panels wow. of automobiles to hide guns and cocaine, who put those massive speakers in cars. So he was so good with a scalpel that he could cut through a door panel where you could hide 14 keys of cocaine. Isn't that unbelievable? Right? And then put it back so you'd never know the panel was cut. That yeah, they, was call, they call that those traps. Traps, yeah. yeah. But that's where they hide guns. And then they, they could play 99.5 on the radio and push the button and the trap comes out with the loaded nine in it. Yeah, or the, or the blinding uh, floodlights that they used to shine off the back to blind yeah. anybody chasing them. Right, right. So this was how they tracked that guy down, by his, his dismemberment signature. So... That's certainly something that can be used. Um, and they do, the Suffolk County Police do have that information. Um, and they could get more actually, if they called back in the forensic team, the uh, anthropology team. So there's so many things to look at here uh, from shaking the tree to all a, 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 a deep dive review of all the scientific evidence and then a push to uh, harvest more DNA and use the high sensitivity, low copy methodology or genetic genealogy or familial DNA analysis or all three. Right. And find out who are these victims. Let's give them names. And the more we know about them, the closer we get to our killer. That's my speech for the day. <laughs> no, Barbara, this is so, so interesting, even like for me, uh, because, uh, when you've worked on major investigations and you've worked on homicides, you really so appreciate that the whole thing about if you take investigation 101, they'll say investigation is an art and a science. And it's so, so true. You know, and the art part of it is talking to people, you know, interview, interrogation, going out there and recognizing things that are evidence. And then the science, of course is DNA, physical evidence, all the things that, that we spoke about. And when they meet together, it's such a, a powerful, powerful tool, you know? And then this case is so, so interesting. And again, I would, I would don't want to criticize anyone because again, yeah. you and I are not privy to all the information. What privy, I'm sure there's probably about 30 different case folders on all the work that they've done over these 10 or 11 years. Yeah. this case and you know a lot of what they have done we have we have no idea because we, we weren't there you know sure they could have a lot of information they could have done everything we've already talked about and come up negative 
or maybe they've got some stuff and they're just waiting, just waiting to see what happens. Maybe um, they'll watch this and you and I are going to get a call and say, hey, Batman and Robin here, come on in. <laughs> you know, I would give my left arm, my left foot, and shave my head for the ability to do that. I would love to work yeah, that day. They should probably hire you as a consultant. You know? I would do it for free. I'd sit there and comb through DD5s and you know old records and, and analyses and stuff. I would I would love to work this case. This case bothers the hell out of me. Yeah. That many people, that many girls, um, the little toddler. You know, who? you know, it shouldn't matter. And I'm sure to most investigators, 99% of them, it doesn't matter who the person was or what they did with their life. Right. It's a human being and something horrendous was done to these human beings. And you want yeah. to find this, this savage that did this, you know, and uh, what the person did with their life. You know, it's none of your business as an investigator. You know, you should work just as hard if this was a nun, you know, as yeah. a prostitute, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't want anybody judging me. God knows I've had my adventures. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the subject of another podcast. For another <laughs> but, you, you know, know yeah, well, this was, it, it was so amazing uh, to talk to you. And, and um, I, I've spoken to you before. You were on one of uh, the police off the cuff episodes. And I always felt that I never got to really get into the, deep nitty gritty of investigation with you. And this was such a pleasure. And I would, you know, I'd like to t tell our audience that Barbara Butcher has also sort of reinvented herself as an actor. And uh, she's uh, always, she takes acting class and uh, she's been auditioning for all kinds of stuff. And you were on a pilot that's supposed to go called Mob Mentality, right? Where is that heading right now? Oh my God, that was the biggest adventure of my life. I thought I had seen everything, but Acting in a TV pilot, what a kick. Uh, yeah, mob mentality. Great. Well, the, the scenes I saw you, you were fantastic. But is that pilot still going to go or what? Yeah, I mean, if COVID clears up, they'll start shooting again. We've got to reshoot the whole thing. It was, wow. you know, done on a low budget. And um, uh, there's interest among, you know, some, uh, some producers. And uh, as soon as life restarts in Hollywood or yeah. in TV land, we got to get that thing reshot and get it out there. It was, There's some really was, interest, interesting characters in that, uh, yeah. in, in that show. I mean, uh, the, the, the lead guy, I, I forget, forget his name. He's all jacked up. Yeah, Jack. Uh, yeah. Jack, yeah. You know, that's a good word why he's jacked up. Uh, he's a great character. And the other yeah. guy is the pro wrestler. I forget his name. He, he, right, Mikey Taverna. Yeah, he's a great character. I mean, there's a lot of... But then... I, you know, I was uh, initially was on the show and then I got a new hip and all this other stuff and I, I'm not in it anymore. But there was a, all these guys that were wannabe Sopranos guys. Yeah. I, you were there that day. We were there with yes. the photos. I was like, oh, yeah. guys, they, they can't believe that they're the real deal here. You know, they're all yeah. got well, un, unlit cigars in their mouth, right? You know, they're... Uh, they were yeah, it was wonderful. a... It was a lot of fun. We had all these little wannabe mob guys hanging around, but um, you know, and I play the mafia mother, the mo the wife of the big the Don of Staten yeah. Island, and the mother of the, the hero. And I never had a better time in my life. What a kick that was! Oh, um, well, I hope it goes because you know. Yeah, I hope it goes. And usually um, they don't kill the mother. 
So no. you'll have you'll you'll work the whole series. Yeah, I was like I was protected. I was uh, I was a made woman. That's right. Um, so I had all that fun, and I've been I did a little acting here and there. I did a, a Evil Lives Here. I did one of those episodes, uh-huh. and uh, and now I'm writing a book about my adventures as a medical legal investigator in New York City at the OCME. Wow, that's um, amazing. I've had some great, great cases and learned an enormous amount about life from dead folks. So, yeah. well, I, t- well, I, Barbara, when I first, I think, met you was at the criminal investigation course or at the homicide course, one of those. Yeah, I see, yeah. But not only were you such a knowledgeable um, professor, I'll say, but the way you presented it with so much humor was what made you such a popular teacher, you know? Because why, hey, this is death. You know, you got to present it with humor because it's horrible, right? Yeah. And yeah. sometimes you, you lighten things like that up. And, you know, I know that uh, you were one of the most popular teachers at the CIC course, which stands for Criminal Investigation Course. And everyone was like, oh, Barbara Butcher's t- uh, teaching today. Everyone made sure they, they made it to class that day, you know? Oh, thank you. You were, you were great. You were great. And... Uh, I mean, I, I, I would, I'd buy your book in a minute. Yeah. Even if Thank it's hardcover, I'll pay for it. Okay. As long as you sign a copy for me, you know? Yeah, you get a signed first edition right off. Oh, that's, um, that's the best, you know? But, yeah, you know, it's I, funny, Barbara, what, we're both doing different, what we're doing with our lives now. Uh, myself and I'm, I, I was doing stand-up comedy, acting. Yeah. I did six episodes of The Perfect Murder. And, you know, but acting's tough. All it that is. rejection, right? It's like yeah. getting rejected all the time. <laughs> I can't take this anymore. <laughs> you know? And I actually was studying with your same uh, teacher, uh, Richard Grasso, before yeah. COVID. And then uh, my teacher, John Swain, decided to retire. I was with him for two years. I was like, you can't leave, you know? Uh, you sort of get attached to your acting teacher, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm still with Anthony Grasso. Great. I, uh, I called him Richard. I'm sorry, Anthony. Yeah. Anthony Grasso. And yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't continue on Zoom because we're doing our podcast on Zoom, and I was like, that's too much Zoom, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know. How do you like taking acting on Zoom? It's a lot different. I don't like it. I yeah. don't like it. There's no, there's no human connection. I'm, I'm talking to an image. I'm not playing off or reacting to a person. Just right. like, you know, our podcasts, when we're in the same room together, you feel that energy. Yes. You know, you gotta, with Zoom, it's harder. You've got to keep that energy up. You know, and, and, and I like what you said about the humor. I think people have to remember something very important. When we're talking about homicides and, and people's lives being horribly altered or, or ended, you know, we, we laugh, we make jokes. It's the only way to survive. That's correct. That's correct. Because if if we absorb in all the pain, all the tragedy that we've seen in our years uh, on the police force or in the medical examiner's office, you you die. You'd shrivel up and die. Yeah. You have to laugh. You have to be creative. You have to do things that remind you of how good life is. Yeah. So that there's, can- there's no disrespect meant towards. No. The deceased. It's just that it's a coping mechanism that everyone that works in a, uh, with death, uh, whether it's the medical examiner or in a homicide squad, you need to, to deal with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. We can go and cry in private, but 
when we're out there working and talking, we have to keep the humor going. We have to remind ourselves how good life is. Otherwise, we're no good to the people we're trying to serve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But I just think it's so great that people see Barbara Butcher 22 years, 23 years, whatever you worked at the OCME's office. And now it's mob mentality, the mother. <laughs> yes. <laughs> changing her life and she's doing something for Barbara Butcher, you know. Yeah. Already paid your dues to society and everyone else and all those dead people who you helped their families get closure. Now you're doing something for yourself, you know. Absolutely. Great thing, you know. Or I love when people say, oh, you reinvented yourself, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but because I, I, people, when I, they heard I do stand-up comedy, they're like, oh, my God, that's crazy, you know. Like, well, I was a homicide sergeant. That was a little crazier. But, you know, I can understand when they say, you know, because stand-up comedy, you're naked up there. You're by yourself. Yeah. You know, everyone bombs, you know. You tell Sometimes you're up there and no one's laughing at you. And using the same jokes that you killed the night before with, you know. Yep. Just a different audience. So, Barbara, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, you're definitely one of my favorite guests of all time. And you, the wealth of knowledge that you bring to this, we should have our own TV show, you know. Yeah. I'm sending <laughs> this out to Hollywood, you know. <laughs> hey, this is the mentality, mother. We could have a show on homicide. What are you, what are you waiting for? You know? Uh, thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure to see you and talk to you. And please give my best to Mark and uh, and the guys. And God, I miss the days when we were out there on the streets together. Yeah, I, it I, was I, a hell of a good time. We did great work. Absolutely. I, I kiss you, but this is on Zoom. <laughs> I'll you. Right. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks. Take care, Bill. I'll All see right. you. This has been Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories with former chief of the New York City OCME, Barbara Butcher. Thanks again, Barbara. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Bye now.